Money Sense is brought to you by the Ellen Becker Investment Group, three-time recipient to the Better Business Bureau's Torch Award for Business Ethics and Integrity. The Ellen Becker Investment Group is the only Wisconsin investment company to receive this prestigious award more than once by providing exceptional planning and extraordinary service each and every day. Go to ellenbecker.com. Listen to Money Sun Saturdays at 2 p.m. and Sundays at noon. Welcome to Money Sense. This is Jamie Williams, Wealth Advisor for the Ellen Becker Investment Group. Ellen Becker Investment Group is located in Pewaukee, just east of Highway 164 and Capitol Drive in the Town Bank Building. We're also in the Village of Whitefish Bay in the Equitable Bank Building, across from Winkies. We also service clients in Bonita Springs, Florida. Visit ellenbecker.com for more details. We have a very special guest today. We're joined by Emily Guy Birkin. Emily is a financial writer, and today we're going to be talking about her book, The Five Years Before Retirement. Emily has had work appear on a number of notable outlets, different podcasts, MSN Money, Forbes, Red Book, Women's Day. She's also written a number of books, uh, mostly related to ending financial stress or planning for certain aspects of the retirement with more of a behavioral kind of focus and definitely trying to keep things simple. Before we begin, I do want to share that you can learn more about Emily's book and visit her website, emilyguyberkin.com. Emily, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So when I picked up your book and just started going through it, I've been a financial planner now for going on 15 years. And right from the beginning, I could see that there's a lot of important information in here and certainly front and center with what we do here at Ellen Becker. So give us a sense. Tell us a little bit about you. How did you become a financial writer? So um, I tripped backwards into it. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually an English teacher by training. So I taught high school English for four years. And then my husband, uh, who is a mechanical engineer, got a job in a different state. And um, we had a kind of inconveniently timed baby. Uh, he, he came at the beginning of the following school year. So Originally, I was going to take a year off to stay home with, uh, with our son, um, and I wanted to keep a little bit of money coming in. I've always been a writer, and so I was like, okay, I can do some freelance writing uh, during this year that's, uh, that I'm home. One of my first gigs that I got as a freelance writer was for a personal finance website. Uh, now, you might be going, okay, English teacher, wh- where, where does the personal finance come in? Uh, I did grow up in the industry. My dad was a financial planner, um, and he actually was the vice president of Cambridge Investment Research, uh, Jim Guy. And so, and I was always a bit of a money nerd um, growing up. It was something that I was really interested in, but it never occurred to me that it was the kind of thing that I could do for a living. The, the, the way that I was interested in money didn't seem to fit with a lot of the things that I knew my dad did and the things I knew I was good at. So... Uh, I started writing for this uh, this um, financial website. Uh, my editor loved my work, passed my name along to his friends. And next thing I knew, I was recreating not quite my uh, teaching, but uh, much more than I anticipated, working a lot less than I would have been working uh, if I had gone back to teaching. And so I decided to, to stick with it so that I could continue being the uh, primary caregiver to my, my kid. Um, we had a second one come along three years later. And um, from that point, things kind of snowballed. I was um, approached by uh, my publisher 
to ask if I would be interested in writing uh, a book about retirement. Um, and the next thing I knew, I'm writing books. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I like to tell people like it, it was uh, entirely accidental how I ended up in this yep. perfect career for me. That's, that is fantastic. And with so many people that I know that are in this industry, you said it, fall backwards into it. So, you know, I, I hadn't grown up in a family where there was anybody kind of leading the way or guiding the whole financial message. However, I, I would definitely have a few people to thank along the way for showing me mm-hmm. how important this is. So mm-hmm. thank you for sharing that. You know, just from the standpoint of the fact that this book, that you basically had revised it and it's now the latest version. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first version, I think, came out somewhere around five or six years ago, correct? Back in 2014? 2014, that's correct. Yes. So tell me about the experience of revisiting your original work and coming up with some of the newer updated things. Like really, mm-hmm. what has changed? I have had in the back of my head, uh, so the the first edition of the Five Years Before You Retire came out in 2014. I wrote it, was writing it in 2013. Uh, and so for a few years now, and I, I, I keep a copy of, of my original one um, on my desk. I, I refer to it when, I, when I'm like, oh, I think I've researched that. Maybe it's in the book. And, you know, I very quickly, you know, you've been seeing things like tax rates and stuff like that are out of date. So there's little things like that, that, uh, you know, that's the expectation when you write a book about finance, that, you know, some of the stuff that you talk about taxes, about um, any number of things along those lines, particularly if it's government related, uh, is going to be out of date. Then there's the stuff that things in the world have changed somewhat, and my views have changed over the years. So um, a a really good example of that is uh, long-term care insurance. When I originally wrote the book, uh, it was in 2013, it was the year after my mom had been ill. She had pneumonia to the point where she had to go into a medically induced coma to help her, her body heal. And one of the casualties of her illness was her business. She owned a, an art gallery for nearly 40 years. And um, for a variety of reasons, uh, she had not been able to get long-term care insurance um, prior to that because of other health issues. But with that on my mind, when I was writing the book in 2013, I was very much, wow, long-term care insurance. <laughs> Um, because I had seen how important it could be. In the, the seven years since that time, I have kind of come to see a little bit more about the long-term care insurance industry, um, how the things are not quite as clear as they are for things like uh, life insurance and, and uh, things where there's a lot more of a market. So it's a lot clearer what you're getting into. You have a, a more clear understanding of things. Uh, and the cost can be so prohibitive for long-term care insurance. So I went from that, like, you know, absolutely go insurance to being um, much more cautious about recommending it. And so that's some, that's the sort of thing that has, um, I, I was very glad to revisit to, to, you know, give a little more nuance to the recommendations I make to my readers. That is the one thing that I believe most people don't understand or really pay attention closely enough to is what we can't plan for. And that's our health, right? Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. there's just so many aspects of what we do for our clients to kind of bring that in because when we're running through software or we're doing investment allocations or some of these things, of course, we want to keep a lot in perspective, but we just don't know. We just mm-hmm. don't know what's mm-hmm. going to happen. And long-term care is one of those probably more than most areas that are missed mm-hmm. amongst not only education, but from the standpoint of what's available and how do people approach it. So that, that's wonderful that you're able to go back and, and reassess and revisit some of those things. I'd like to talk a little bit about retirement readiness. Mm-hmm. 
that's probably the area that people focus on the most is that that five years before retirement. Mm -hmm. We hear it all the time. And it's really where it's at, you know, around making sure that you're kind of getting things um, lined up for a long-term successful retirement. There's always different complex areas of finance that people focus on. Uh, You don't know what you don't know, right? And Mm -hmm. if you were to kind of frame the idea around stepping up to the plate, if you will, to say, Mm -hmm. what are the things that people should be thinking about from a mindset perspective Mm -hmm. on taking on this as a core responsibility for them financially? Yeah, it's it's so difficult because of the way that we think about things. Like we have this very binary viewpoint of the world where it's like you're working, then you're not working. Um, you're, you're accumulating money, then you're spending money. Um, and so one of the things that I really would recommend my readers do um, and anyone who's looking towards retirement, kind of turn off that binary thinking, rec- recognize that it's all of your life. And so what can you do now that can help you prepare for then is partially about what can you do now that you'll be doing then. So that could be something financially. So, you know, thinking about like, okay, if you know that you're going to have to reduce what you live on, then you can start living on on less now so that you can kind of get used to it. So it's not like falling off a cliff after retirement. If you know that you are going to have a hard time filling your days after retirement, now is the time to start gathering community and start hobbies. So no matter what it is that is going to change about your life after retirement, um, starting now to kind of incorporate those changes into your life so that you can kind of have this smooth transition rather than it being some sort of major shock is really, really important. And then thinking, taking the time to think through what is going to change in my life is something that I don't think enough people do. So other than like, I don't have to go in the office anymore, but uh, you know, really thinking about the nitty gritty, what's my day-to-day life going to look like? Um, What's my spending going to look like? Um, What's my travel going to look like? All of those different things. And I think that's a really important part of preparing for retirement, no matter where you are, whether you've got, you know, plenty of money and you're not worried about it, or if you've got, uh, if you're worried about finances, or if you're just not sure, no matter what it is, if you start thinking about what's going to change and then kind of preparing for that, that's going to put you ahead of the game for a lot of people. Well said. And I'll tell you, you know, as we meet with our clients and we're always starting somewhere, but we want to get to a desired place. You know, we encourage our clients to retire to something versus kind of, mm-hmm. hey, I just worked in this field and now I'm just all of a sudden one day thinking about what to do. So thinking about that in advance can be so beneficial and, you know, going back, you know, years from now and thanking your past self for doing it, right? Mm -hmm. Let's talk more about that when we get back from this short commercial break. Welcome to Money Sense. This is Jamie Williams with Ellen Becker Investment Group. My guest today is Emily Guy Bergen. Emily is joining us as a financial writer. Her most recent book, one of many, is The Five Years Before Retirement. And Emily, thank you again for joining us today. Welcome back. Thank you very much for having me. So in the last segment, we were talking a little bit about, you know, kind of ideas leading into what makes people think about money and what motivates them. There's a very large area of of science and psychology surrounding behavior finance. 
And we know that that's probably more of what your focus is on with your writings. Emily, I was thinking we would talk a little bit about behavioral finance and in particular, how it factors into the household, uh, whether it's you know, a couple, we might be working with a younger family or some people that are closer to retirement, maybe empty nesters. What are your perspective and thoughts around the decision-making process and you know, other things that might be important for people to think about as they approach it? Sure. Uh, so the thing with money is that we have this sense that money is really easy if you can add and subtract you to your money. Problem is that uh, we don't recognize that money is actually this delusion we all share. Um, it doesn't actually exist. It doesn't exist in nature. Um, you can't eat it. You can't build a house out of it. You can't wear it. Um, and you can't even spend it outside of places where it is legally accepted as tender. But we all value it. But because of that, we are all putting our own values on it and our own moral systems on it. So that can get very um, difficult in household spending. Because you have uh, at least two people who are coming at money from different perspectives. Um, even if you have very similar belief systems, even if you have very similar values, one of you is going to have one set of beliefs about money while the other has another set of beliefs about money. So something that seems like a perfectly reasonable thing to spend money on or a perfectly reasonable financial decision for one person is going to sound like completely ridiculous to the other. And so that's one of those things. And because we don't talk about money, money is a taboo subject in, in this country. So, you know, other than when you're sitting down with a financial advisor, we don't have these conversations with money. So we don't learn that our ideas about money are uh, unusual or that uh, they don't fit with what other people think about money. So, you know, you're coming at this with, a, well, this is an immutable fact about how money works. And you're bumping into somebody else's immutable fact about how money works. Mm -hmm. And that ends up causing so much friction. There's a very good reason why the majority of divorces um, come about because of money problems, because people are not arguing specifically about, you know, the number of dollars in your checking account. You're arguing about values, but it's very difficult to recognize that. What's really important is for couples to kind of talk about what it is that the spending or the saving means to them. So why does this matter that you take a vacation every year, for instance, whereas the other person is saying like, that's a ridiculous waste of money. Why does it matter that you have a really robust emergency fund to the point where you might be uh, losing some money because your emergency fund is so big and you could be investing some of it? Why, what does that represent for you? And so once you can come to that, uh, uh, an understanding of like, oh, okay, so vacations to you mean family togetherness and closeness. Maybe we can find another way to help you feel that togetherness, closeness. Oh, to you, having an emergency fund, that, that means security. That means feeling like you can handle what's coming. Um, what are some other ways we might be able to help you feel that way without losing money to inflation? So that's really difficult to do, um, even if you know these things going into it. But being able to find ways to talk about what it is that money means to you with the people closest to you is going to make it a lot easier to make those decisions without having these knockdown drag out fights that money can sometimes cause. Yeah, no, I fully agree with you on that sense, because I believe most people don't really stop to think about why they're doing something, right? Mm -hmm. And the unknowns, there are so many unknown variables out there and what are people really thinking 
Um, you know, I have an example I like to share from time to time, and it, and it relates to people that are saving for retirement. And whether they're 20 or 30 or 50, uh, they put a certain amount of money away, hopefully, and maybe they are, maybe they're not funding it the way they should be. But if, if they're putting five to 10 or maybe more per percentage of their income away, are they really stopping to think for any period of time throughout the year, how much exactly effort they're putting into the process and, and mm -hmm. what those thoughts are. If I'm putting 10% of my income away, I sure hope that I'm thinking about what I'm going to do with that, right? Mm -hmm. Just mm -hmm. from the standpoint of cause and effect. So just a couple really good ideas there. Um, thank you for sharing that. Have there been any particular instances or, or thoughts that come to mind about just challenging family dynamics that make it difficult for people to really implement a plan in a very straightforward manner. Um, well, there's there's a, a several different different things that can be um, problematic. There's um, uh, in pretty much every couple that I, I've I've seen, there's generally one person who's the point person when it comes to money. A lot of the challenges you'll see is the point person struggling, you know, getting them to buy in, getting them to to see like this really is going to work, um, because a lot of times people think of um, dealing with money as being like spreadsheets and deprivation. So that, that it can be very difficult for the, for the point person to get the other person on board. And then it can be even worse if um, one person is spending without telling the other person, that sort of thing. So that's one aspect of it. Then there's sometimes where you get two people who both want to be in charge um, and then they can kind of butt heads about um, what the right process is. And so that can be very, very challenging. Um, in that case, you at least have two people who, are, who both have buy-in. You know, they both want to be doing things to make money um, work for them as a couple. But when, when you are, are coming at it like that and you each have different views on how the best way to do it can be, you can get kind of gridlock and, and people getting very frustrated with each other. And then you sometimes have two people where neither of them want to take care of money. So at that point, it's just kind of almost like a game of chicken. <laughs> Each of these setups, you have um, a really challenging situation that can be really, really tough to navigate, no matter which one of these situations you're in, whether you're, you're, you've got two avoiders, you've got two, two people who are willing to work on it, or you've got one avoider, one worker. And so the goal, I think, is to start with the end in mind. Like, what is it that you want to, to do? You want to be able to retire. You want to feel financially secure. You want to be able to uh, send your kids to college, whatever it is, and then work backwards to find something that works for both people in the couple to make that happen. That is very good advice, starting with the end in mind. And one of the things that I've discovered throughout my career is that so many people will just do some of the things that are required, right? Just they'll, they'll get on board, they'll put money away, they'll maybe make sure they have the lowest interest rate on their mortgage. But then there's going to come a point in their lives where they're going to need to really put it all together and look mm -hmm. at both sides of the balance sheet, look at cash flow, look at a, a lot of different aspects and just getting to that point of, of making those decisions. Emily, from your perspective, is there any thought about making that first decision, the first step? Um, you know, I, I liken it to cooking um, because uh, a lot of people are scared of making money decisions. Like they, I, I've talked to lots of people who are terrified of it. I ask them, do you cook? And pretty much everyone does. Similar to cooking, if you're learning how to cook, you don't start with a souffle. You start with microwave nachos. Um, so right. similar with money, you are not going to start 
speaking NASDAQ fluently, you start off with, do I have an emergency fund? And so you, you build your confidence slowly by doing that. And you remember that even with really serious potential consequences of making a, a wrong move with your money, it's a little facetious, but it does get people to kind of like unclench and relax and recognize like, you know what, it won't be so bad. And I'm probably not going to screw up that badly. I'm starting with building an emergency fund. That's not something that's uh, you know going to have serious consequences. Absolutely. Singles and doubles. Mm-hmm. Uh, great place to start. Well, thank you. And we will be right back after a short break. Welcome back to Money Sense. This is Jamie Williams, Wealth Advisor with Ellen Becker Investment Group. Today, I am joined by Emily Guy Birkin, a financial author, and most recently with her revised Five Years Before You Retire, which can be found where your books are sold, and also a number of other uh, resources that Emily would share with you, a website, emilyguyberkin.com. Before we left our last segment, we were talking about the taking the important step of deciding when it's time to put together a financial plan. And we often, as planners, we talk about process and how many things there are, because you really just don't put together a plan and one day walk out of your financial advisor's office and it's all set. There's so many different steps involved. And you know, one of the things that Emily's book does is it helps to frame not only what's important, but even from a standpoint of almost a play-by-play of things you might want to consider that would be important leading up to retirement. And by the way, I found that this book would be good for just about anybody, whether they're in retirement or thinking about it 20 years in advance. So with that, Emily, welcome back. I wanted to spend some time talking about process today. And Mm -hmm. I think the most important step in the process is deciding you want to move forward mm-hmm. with the right person or the right group, you know, involved to assist you. Emily, are there any particular steps in the financial process that you would view as more important than others? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, I mean, always the, the first step. <laughs> and the first step being that you decide I'm going to do something about this. And that can, that's always often the hardest in the same way that, uh, you know, stepping on the scale on January 1st is always the hardest moment. But, you know, doing that, that uh, instead of letting it be this amorphous, like I should do something about retirement someday, that's, you know, on your kind of like mental to-do list, you actually say, I'm going to look at the 401k offering at my job and see how much I've already put aside and how much the match is and, you know, how much more I can add to it. You know, that's a, like a concrete thing that you can do. And mm-hmm. so that is, is what I think of as most important. Um, a lot of times our money tasks are the sorts of things that we let ourselves just feel guilty about, like, oh, I should do this, I should do this, and we never get around to. The most important step is going to be the one where you come up with a concrete thing you can do. So that might be logging onto the, the portal at work for, um, for your 401k or your, your retirement account. It might be like, okay, I'm finally going to call that financial planner that my brother-in-law recommended. Um, You know, it might be, okay, I'm going to start putting some money aside into my 401k. Like I'm, I'm, I'm only doing the the bare minimum. So whatever uh, that first concrete step is, Mm -hmm. that is, is I think going to be the most important. And then 
the other thing that I think is really important is recognizing what you're good at and what you're not good at. We have the sense that people who are good at money all have the same characteristics and that's simply not true. Um, so I tend to be, I mean, I'm, I'm a financial writer. I'm a money nerd. Um, I, I actually do like spreadsheets. I'm very good with money, but I have a very much a status quo bias. For instance, my husband and I had some money in a Vanguard fund um, and I was perfectly happy put, keeping it there and, you know, had color coded mm -hmm. spreadsheets of how much money was in there. And he was looking at it going, what's the, you know, how much has it been earning per year? And so I was like, all right, well, I'll go look. And I looked and it was like less than 4%. And he's like, why is it there? We could put it in an index fund. It's an S&P 500 index fund and be doing better. And we're like, but, but, uh, but the color-coded spreadsheet. And so right. recognizing <laughs> that I'm very good at keeping track of things, at uh, like keeping the, the machines going um, of our money. Whereas my husband is, uh, he's an engineer. And so he's yeah. very much of the, how do we maximize? How do we make this better? What are things that we can improve? And so that's something that is also a really important part of getting ready for retirement, of taking control of your money, is recognizing when you might need someone else's point of view. Uh, if you're lucky, someone else's point of view might be easily found. For other people, they may need a um, professional, a CFP to come in and give them uh, another point of view. Or you may be able to find additional points of view by doing some reading and realize, oh, I hadn't even thought about that. Oh, people do that too. But um, starting from the, here are my strengths. I'm doing really well with this. Where can I improve? Is, mm -hmm. is a really good way of making sure that you fill in the gaps um, between what you have and where you want to be. Most definitely. And I would, I would add just from the standpoint of being a little bit vulnerable mm -hmm. in the sense of hey, look, maybe I haven't done this exactly like I wanted to over the last how many years or decades even, but taking ownership of your financial life and just, mm -hmm. I mentioned it earlier, you don't know what you don't know, but there's a lot that could be learned. Find the right resources to get answers that mm -hmm. you need. What aspect, so I, I was curious about influence mm -hmm. because there's kind of influencers with our financial decision process. Um, any thoughts on those within the relationship or even outside of the relationship that would stand as an influencer? So um, something that I, I kind of embraced from my childhood is, um, so as I mentioned, my dad um, was a financial planner. And uh, one of the things I really appreciated about what he taught me about money was to embrace my paranoia. And I, I'm, I tend to be a very trusting person. Um, and I like that about myself. But when it comes to money, my first thought is always, what's in this for you? Um, so if someone comes to me with a solution to a problem, I am very much going to be, I'm really uncomfortable with that. If I have a problem, I will go seeking the solution. And so that's, that's a, um, a, an attitude that I think is important for everyone to kind of take on in that, you know, if you are following, you know, kind of like the financial influencers in the media, um, you know, think about why are they providing this information? Is it good advice? Okay, if it seems like it's good advice, then that's fine. That providing this information is good advice. Is there um, some sort of sponsored content? Are they being paid by somebody? Mm -hmm. Okay, well then, like that doesn't necessarily make it bad advice, but maybe get a second or third or fourth opinion. And so, kind of come at it that way. I like to remind people that no one is going to care about your money as much as you do. So um, while that, I don't want people to think, well, then I shouldn't be a professional. No, that doesn't mean that at all. It means that your professional 
is your partner rather than someone you hand the reins to. Your professional is going to be the one with the map, giving you a sense of which direction to go. Ultimately, you get to decide. Um, but you need to remember that ultimately, um, this is going to be your retirement. This is going to be your nest egg. This is going to be your money. This is going to be your life. Mm -hmm. And so um, because money can be intimidating, people are often uh, wanting to kind of abdicate that responsibility by saying like, oh, so-and-so on MSNBC said this, where it's a lot better to be like, okay, here are some opinions I've read. This one makes sense to me. Maybe I can take it to someone I trust and see what they have to say about it. But ultimately the decision is mine and um, the responsibility is mine. And that's, I think, a really healthy way of looking at your money, at your retirement, at um, yeah. what's going to work best for you. Yeah. And I, I think that that's a very good point, you know, is what people are talking about, whether it's in the media or what's being presented by some sort of financial professional around a solution is it, is it a trend? So it, it kind of embracing the paranoia mm -hmm. and really is it good advice. I, I think that's where kind of that element of trust that needs to be built over time and understanding and education is probably the, the biggest aspect of what your relationship should be with your financial advisor or professional. So when I think about planning and taking that step forward and all right, we don't have a will, we don't have a trust, we don't have some of the things that may, maybe we should have, maybe we shouldn't, but I think just taking the commitment to doing it mm -hmm. and understanding it's a process, it's not going to happen overnight. And then your investment really is your commitment and it's your time. And then understanding that there, there's so many moving parts of this and things change over time. I mean, just thinking back from your book in the last six years, since you wrote the first edition to now, mm -hmm. there's so many different aspects of it, you know, and of course, being part of the CFP practitioner community you know, so much of what we do is just to really help people understand and guide them through the process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, when we, when we sit down, we just want people to know it takes time and then setting a realistic goal, you know, whether it's three months, six months, you know, by year end, by the holidays to say, we've really addressed it. Your first step is to pull up 401k statement and look at it, right? Mm -hmm. So many different things we could talk about today. I wanted to touch a little bit about what people should be thinking around their estate planning? Is there any one area of estate planning that would be the most critical or important area that you would think about? Um, having one? <laughs> <laughs> I am pretty fierce about uh, the importance of estate planning um, in part because I lost my father in 2013 and um, was the victim of inheritance theft after that. Oh. And uh, so um, my dad was a financial planner and he knew what he was doing, and yet he still had an estate plan that was stealable, despite him knowing what he was doing. So even if even my dad is is uh, could create in a plan that was uh, vulnerable, that means that anybody could. Well, with that, you know, Emily, I'm very sorry, of course, to hear that happen with you. So when we get back, we'll pick up there, and you will be back after the short break. Welcome back to Money Sense. This is Jamie Williams, Wealth Advisor at Ellen Becker Investment Group. Today, I have a very special guest. We're joined by Emily Guy Birkin. Emily has her book, The Five Years Before You Retire. And before the break, we were talking about estate planning. Emily, again, thank you for joining us. There's a number of things that you know we, we want to touch on today. Mm -hmm. So many different aspects and topics that we could go down the path. But I know that estate planning is very kind of passionate for you. And 
before the break, you mentioned some personal things that were kind of important and also just in perspective with making sure that people keep those aspects of their financial plan in perspective. So my personal belief is that at a minimum, you should be reviewing your beneficiary designations at least annually. Mm -hmm. And I can Mm -hmm. tell you from personal experience how many times I've seen a household or a couple where maybe it's a second marriage or they just didn't bother to take the step. And it, it just creates a very undesirable situation for many if, mm-hmm. if it's not done properly. So with that, Emily, your thoughts on you know making sure that an estate plan is put together in a proper way. Mm-hmm. So as I mentioned, um, so I, I was a victim of inheritance theft um, after my father passed away. And I've come to learn that this is extremely common. And what it has taught me is that your estate plan Needs, you need to look at it with the eye of what could go wrong with it the way it is written. Uh, so for instance, it never occurred to my father that he would die relatively young. On top of that, it never occurred to him that the person he chose as um, the executor and trustee of, of his will and, and uh, trust was not trustworthy. And no one wants to think those things. You don't want to think that the, the person that you choose is going to be untrustworthy Um, The thing to remember is that uh, grief does weird things to people. Um, I like to say that grief makes someone um, who they are concentrate. And so however the person acts under normal circumstances is going to be magnified by grief. And so um, it's really important with any estate plan to look at it as if it's one traumatic brain injury, even if you know that you can trust the person, one traumatic brain injury away from them doing something that uh, is against your wishes. So for me, I think it's really important that um, estate attorneys, but also um, people who are building their estate plans, look at them and say like, okay, where are the holes in this? Where can this be picked apart? Is there anyone who has control over money in a way that it could be negative towards somebody else? And then that's something to be revisiting regularly. Um, You know, you hear often about people will pass away and the will will talk about, um, you know, where their their, uh, minor children will go and the children are now 50, (laughs) Um, you know, and things like that. So like checking those beneficiary designations, because that's one of the things is this isn't um, strictly inheritance theft, but um, um, incorrect beneficiaries or or out-of-date beneficiaries is a major problem. I know many, many people who have passed away forgetting that they had, uh, you know, someone's ex-spouse listed as a beneficiary who is now no longer related to the family. So having that be something that you revisit on a regular basis and look at it as a, um, a document that needs to be looked at with a very critical eye so that the, the law can be used as best it can to ensure that your wishes are followed. Uh, is is something I am extremely fierce on. And I, I tell everyone all the time, because if it can happen to my dad, it can happen to anyone. Most definitely. I mean, I, and I'm so sorry that, that your family had to go through that experience. And, and, you know, when I was studying estate planning, we had an instructor, it was like a master's level course. And the, the estate planning instructor was up at the top of the room and just essentially said, this isn't something for everyone, right? You have to pick the right people in your life to represent you mm-hmm. and what's important to your family. So very, very um, important message. Thank you. Um, also, when I think about estate planning, I mean, the first thing that goes to people's minds is having a will or having, you know, may- maybe a trust, maybe not. 
But one area I think that people miss is the powers of attorney and the, mm-hmm. and the aspect of making sure that you have specifically the one for healthcare, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because that is something many, many people, if they end up in the hospital or end up in a situation where they're in an, in an accident, they, in some cases, just can't get the representation that they need. And it's the whole the whole picture really surrounding the estate planning. So I wanted to just ask you, as I was paging through the book and looking at the different areas, there's a section in here that is geared at trying to get you ready, right? For retirement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, do you want to share a little bit about that and how you came up with that important list? Sure. Um, So new to this edition is a retirement readiness checklist. And I wanted to create that for a couple of reasons. Um, one is, uh, you know, there are some people who, uh, you know, they got straight A's and gold stars in, uh, in school. And so they want to know, like, okay, how am I doing? How am I doing? And then there are the, the folks who are, like, really freaked out going, I have no idea what I'm doing. For both of those types of people, this retirement readiness checklist is really helpful because it can tell you where the gaps are if you are, you know, the, the sort of person who's been trying to get ready. Um, but you go, oh, gosh, I hadn't thought about that part. Or, oh, goodness, I don't have an estate plan. Or, oh, that should be considered part of my retirement readiness. Figuring out what my community is going to be in, in retirement, that should be part of it. And then for the folks who are feeling completely overwhelmed, the retirement readiness checklist kind of gives you um, different sectors of your retirement to focus on. So, you know, focusing on savings and investing for retirement, uh, focusing on your uh, estate plan. And so that gives you a jumping off point so that you don't have this big amorphous goal that no one's really uh, defined for you. So that's something that um, I thought was really important to have in this book. Um, mm-hmm. It appears at the end of the book, but I think a lot of people might end up starting the book with a retirement readiness checklist, you know, taking a pencil and kind of filling in what sure. they have and, and figuring out like, okay, what do I need from this? And it's something you can take to your financial planner and say like, I don't, I don't have this, what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I think that's great. And, and you know, starting with the end in mind, right? Also in your book, there's some very well thought out um, ideas or suggestions around finding the right financial planner. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Many, you know, many people probably find value in that. And also when you think going back to the readiness checklist, I would also add that that list will take some pressure off of those conversations with those most important, right? I mean, I can imagine that sitting down with a spouse or significant other or loved one just to kind of talk about these things as they exist. It's more of an objective-based approach to making sure that you're just thinking about it. Yeah, I, I was also thinking because I'm, I'm in the age group that, um, you know, at my parents' age are, are starting to retire. Um, it's also really helpful for adult children to say like, hey, mom, dad, let's talk about this. Do you have this, this kind of stuff in place? Um, and again, having that kind of checklist can be really helpful because then you can say like, hey, let's work on this together. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, 25 years away from retirement, you're five years from retirement. Let's talk a little bit about uh, like how we're all preparing for it. And, and then it, it kind of takes some of that pressure off of that weird family dynamic that you can have when talking to your parents about money. That's fantastic. Emily, can you share with us where our guests and listeners can find more information about your books and you? Certainly. Uh, You can find me at my website, emilyguyberkin.com. I have uh, links to all four of my books um, on the website uh, where you can buy the books. Um, They're available anywhere books are sold and also amazon.com. 
Uh, you can also reach me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Emily Guy Birkin. And I'm also on Facebook um, at author Emily Guy Birkin. That is fantastic. Thank you so much for being our guest today. In closing, I would like to mention that Ellen Becker is hosting a new workshop series, Inspire Retirement, with yours truly, Jamie Williams, running it. Uh, it's the third Tuesday of every month, giving us all some ideas about what to retire to. And Emily, thank you once again for joining us. Money Sense airs on Saturdays from 2 to 3 p.m. and on Sundays from 12 to 1 p.m. If you like today's show and want to know more, please visit www.ellenbecker.com or call us at 262-691-3200. As always, we hope that we've made a difference in your personal and financial well-being. Remember, before we plan, before we advise, before we invest, we always listen.